Well, we are still in Ephesians chapter 5, working our way through this chapter. And we are in the beloved text about marriage, the roles of men and women in the home. Now, it's, it's no secret that the ideal marriage that God designed for Adam and Eve and which they enjoyed back in the garden for a, a rather short time has drifted away, as it were, from paradise. We've drifted away. It's been 10,000 years since that very first wedding of a man and a woman in holy matrimony before the eyes of God. And while the institution of marriage has somehow survived, some predict that it won't be long before it goes the way of the dodo and won't leave any trace behind. If you read the newspapers or see any of the grocery store tabloids, you may be tempted to believe that. There's no denying the fact that marriage is just not held in the esteem that it once was. You know the statistics. Roughly one out of every two marriages in America ends in divorce. One out of every three babies is born outside of marriage. And one out of every four children live in a single-parent home. The practice of cohabitation has gone from just over 500,000 unmarried couples back in the 1970s to 4.7 million unmarried couples cohabiting in the year 2000. And it's gotten worse since then in these past five years. Virtually every family in America has been touched by the disintegration of a family that is connected to theirs as their marriage has dissolved in some way, shape, or form. And divorce is easier to obtain now than it's ever been before. In fact, an attorney in Seattle has taken advantage of this trend by establishing a website. It's a do-it-yourself divorce website called completecase.com. A few years ago, he was already estimating that his service on the web has aided thousands of couples to uncouple. The estranged husbands and wives need only to agree on a few property and custody issues and fill out the forms online and pay their $249 fee, and it's done. Marriage over. And what about all the millions of children who grew up in divorced homes with divorced parents? Well, many of them have grown to view marriage not as a means of great joy and great fulfillment and great satisfaction in life, but more like a debilitating disease that they hope to never catch. And as a result, fewer young people are committing to marriage, and those who do generally wait until they are significantly older than their parents were when they got married and Half of them don't make it. Some have even taken upon themselves to reinvent the institution altogether. And I'm not speaking about homosexual marriage. We talked about that a few weeks ago. I'm going to give you a different example. World Magazine reports that in the Netherlands, a young woman by the name of Jennifer Hose is planning the first postmodern marriage. At her wedding, she will be both bride and groom. She told reporters, we live in a me society, hence it is altogether logical that one promised to be faithful to oneself. She plans a $22,000 reception for her relatives. She's blowing the whole thing, going all the way to marry herself. The commentator who wrote this article 
asked, I wonder if she will fall into the postmodern rage and adopt the double-barreled name Jennifer Hose Hose, for example. And what if she ceases to like herself? Will divorce be an option? And which hose will get the car? <laughs> well, it's easy to poke fun at such absurdity, and there are many examples that I could share with you. But the reality of what is happening to marriage in our day is tragic beyond measure. And the real tragedy is that it doesn't have to be this way. And it certainly doesn't have to be this way. Indeed, shouldn't be this way in the church. Among professing Christians. Marriage can and should be the means of tremendous fulfillment. Tremendous joy. Tremendous satisfaction. And that's what God designed it to be. And frankly, I think Jennifer Hose put her finger on the problem. You see, the reason marriages break down is because so many of us do in secret what Miss Hose did in public. Namely, we commit to undying faithfulness to ourselves. We come into marriage with thoughts of, what is this going to do for me? Will this arrangement make me happy or satisfy my desires? Will it enhance my joy? It's fundamentally a commitment to self, a secret commitment to self. Your spouse thinks you're committing to her or to him, but secretly you are committing to your own fulfillment. The other person is just there as a means of fulfilling your commitment to you. But if my spouse ever gets between me and my first love, which is me, it's over. It's over. Now, we speak of all of this as if it were a modern phenomenon, but in reality, married men and women have struggled with these things since Adam and Eve were kicked out of paradise. It's always been this way. Maybe not to the intensity. There were certain cultural mores that kept marriages intact outwardly, even though they were devastated inwardly. But this was true back when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, and it was true in the Apostle Paul's day, even to the extreme. So when the Apostle Paul speaks to the matter, he attacks the problem at its root because he was very, very familiar with it. If you want your marriage to turn from paradise lost to paradise regained, there are some changes that need to be made. And the probable cause is that one or both of you believe the marital universe revolves around you. Everything revolves around me. We call it the meocentric universe. My children revolve around me. My church revolves around me. And if I don't like it, I just leave. If I don't like my wife anymore, she's not meeting my leads, I leave. Jesus dealt with this problem because the Pharisees came and they said, What? Jesus, can a man divorce his wife for any reason? And they were thinking, you know, if she burns the bagels, can we leave? Uh, if she speaks to a man in public, can we leave? And he goes all the way back to Genesis, the same place the Apostle Paul goes in Ephesians. One or both of you believes that the marriage revolves around you. You view your mate as a means to your own happiness. And so your goal is to get from him or her... Get them to do things that enhance your life and bring you fulfillment and secure your joy. And Paul is saying in Ephesians 5, that is completely upside down. 
That way of thinking is completely upside down. It was never intended to be viewed that way. And to the degree that you do view it that way and practice inconsistent with your view, to that degree, your marriage is in trouble. If you want your marriage to turn from paradise loss to paradise gain, you've got to start by realigning your commitment. And so the chief goal needs to shift from pleasing yourself to According to chapter 5, verse 10, pleasing the Lord. Your pursuit of joy in marriage needs to undergo a strategic turn so that whereas you once pursued personal satisfaction through the manipulation of the other person to conform themselves, herself or himself, to your will, now you've strategically changed. You have repented so that now you pursue your joy still, but now you pursue it in pursuing the will of God who loves you. It's no longer about your will and your goals. It's now about God's will and God's goal and your spouse's joy. The goal should not be to ever, ever, ever to change your mate's heart. You can't even change your own heart. It should never be about changing your mate's heart. Or bringing her or him to repentance. It should be all about you getting your own selfish heart to rejoice with the psalmist who exclaimed, I delight to do your will, O God. Your will. And to sound like Jesus? Father, if there's any other way, nevertheless, your will, your will be done. You see, the real issue in marital conflict is never a compatibility problem. A compatibility problem. I can never say that word. It just seems so appropriate to say combat. It's not a compatibility problem. It's a lordship problem. It's a lordship problem. The question is, who are you committed to serving? Who is your master? If my master is me, I'm in serious trouble. But if my master is the Lord... If your commitment is to serve yourself, you're headed for disaster. But if your commitment is to serving the Lord of your marriage in obedience to his word, he promises you joy unspeakable and full of glory. Paradise lost can be paradise regained. But it requires repentance. A willing and joyful repentance Well, you may say, what does that kind of commitment look like? Well, Paul offers the answer in chapter 5, verse 21. In marriage, as in the family, commitment takes on the form of submission. It's a total break from the wisdom of the world. It's a mindset that says, under the authority of Christ, I am willing and joyfully choosing to rank myself under my spouse. I rank myself under my husband. I rank myself under my wife. That's what he says. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So instead of saying, what can I get from my spouse? 
I begin asking myself and the Lord, what can I give to her? Instead of asking, what can she do for me today? I ask myself, what can I do for her? How can I meet her needs? How can I serve her? How can I make her load a little lighter and her day a little brighter? What can I do? How can I serve you, honey? Now, Paul says, subject yourselves or rank yourselves under one another in the fear of Christ. Now, what does it mean for the wife? What does it mean for the wife to rank herself under her husband? Well, it means that the path back to paradise begins with submission. That's what Paul says. And we already looked at this, but verse 22, wives be subject or rank yourself under your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. And so as we saw a couple of weeks ago, submitting to his leadership in the home is what the wife is called to do. Now, what does that look like? Well, let me just give you a bullet list here. Just for example, it means respecting him as God's appointed leader and protector and provider. Listen, even if he is an unbeliever, that may very well be the means of grace to him, You are never to marry an unbeliever. But if you as an unbeliever have married an unbeliever and you come to Christ, you love him and respect him anyway. It means relating to him in a way that resembles the way the church relates to Christ. It means giving him honor and support and help and encouragement. It means never belittling him or making his flaws a public spectacle but speaking well of him for his good and to demonstrate the greatness of the gospel. It means being a good manager of your home when he's gone. It means respectfully pointing him back to the word of God when he begins to drift. There are sometimes, ladies, when you just need to confront your husband and say, Honey, I know I'm in submission to you, but we're both in submission to the word of God. And let me remind you of a text. And I love you. And I'm afraid that you're beginning to drift a little bit. And we don't need to go there. It also means respectfully pointing him back to the word of God. It means praying for him and seeking the Lord's blessing upon his life. It means pursuing personal holiness and the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. That's what it looks like. That's what a submissive wife looks like, and that's the kind of commitment that will begin turning the marriage around. Now, what about the husband? And this is where we start, men. One of the brothers came to me this morning. He said, you know, a couple of weeks ago when you preached before you left, man, I just need to thank you for that because that's the first time in a long time you preached a sermon that didn't convict me personally. And I said, well, get ready, brother. (laughs) It's coming this week and next What about the husband? What is his role in all of this? Well, Paul picks up that point in verse 25. I want us to read verses 25 through 33, and this is where we're going to camp out for a couple of weeks now. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, 
but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Now, we're able to unpack impact God's instruction to the believing wife in a single message, which we did a few weeks ago. But as you can see, it's going to take a few more to unpack all that God has to say is the responsibility of a believing husband. So wives, if you felt a little picked on last time, just relax and enjoy. And husbands, put on your seatbelts, because this may be a rough ride. The first thing I want you to notice with me is that nowhere in this text does God call the man, now hang with me and don't be scandalized by what I'm about to say. Nowhere in this text, in this text, in this text, does God call the man to lead or to exercise authority. It's not here. When he spoke about the wife's role, he pointed out that the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. And so that's a significant aspect of the husband's role. He is to give leadership to his wife and his family under the authority of Christ. In fact, let me give you some of the other texts. And Paul says in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1, these are the classic texts that deal with deacons and elders. That if a man does not manage his household well, he is not fit to serve the church as a deacon or elder. For if a man does not know how to manage his own household, Paul says, 1 Timothy 3, 5, how will he take care of the church of God? So when Paul addresses wives, he makes it clear that they are to view their husbands as the head and leader of their household. But this is not the issue at hand when Paul speaks to the husbands directly. He is about to speak to us, men. He's speaking to us beginning with verse 25 all the way through verse 32, 33. But he's not speaking to us about leadership. And there's a reason for that. I think it's already assumed. The whole idea here is that while we are each called to different roles in marriage, both are commanded, both husband and wife are commanded to rank themselves under, to live in submission to, To rank ourselves under one another. Wives rank themselves under their husbands by submitting to their authority and honoring them with respect. And guarding themselves lest they should in any way disrespect their husbands publicly. Husbands, on the other hand, are to rank themselves under their wives as well. Not in terms of submitting to their authority, because God does not give the wife authority over the husband. You see that nowhere in Scripture. But rather by loving her, and here we go, loving her as Christ loves the church. That's our model. Was the Lord Jesus a leader? Oh man, he was God. He was a leader of leaders. 
I mean, leadership is based on how God leads. And Jesus was the perfect model of it. But how did he lead? He led as one who came to serve. Now, if you think these are radical thoughts in our day, you just can't imagine how radical they were in Paul's day. I mean, it was way worse. In the first century, the husband was the supreme authority over his house. The state held that a man uh, was kind of a deity. He was the deity of his home. He had authority to virtually do as he pleased, with whom he pleased, whenever it pleased, without threat or reprisal, as long as he did it in the home. In the Roman culture, as in most cultures of the day, women were treated little better than slaves. In fact, Marcius Cato, the famous Roman statesman of the second century BC, wrote, If you catch your wife in an act of infidelity, you can kill her without a trial. But if she were to catch you, she would not venture to touch you with her finger. She has no rights. End quote. There are written accounts of the time of husbands riding home from their stations as soldiers in battle, giving their wives instructions on what to do with the child that they were about to give birth to. And there are a couple of instances where the man would write home and say, uh, I'm looking forward to the birth of our new, new child. If it is a boy, go and make sacrifice to the gods. But if it's a girl, kill her. Demosthenes said, We have courtesans for the sake of pleasure. We have concubines for the sake of daily cohabitation. We have wives for the purpose of having children legitimately legitimately, and of having a faithful guardian over our household affairs. Xenophon said it was the husband's aim that a wife might see as little as possible, hear as little as possible, and ask as little as possible. Similarly, Socrates said, Is there anyone to whom you entrust more serious matters than to your wife? And is there anyone to whom you talk less? In these early centuries, marriage was virtually meaningless. It was virtually meaningless. And the husband had absolute rule and freedom to do as he pleased. The man of that culture wielded ultimate and sometimes tyrannical authority over his house with the state's full approval, just as our state gives similar rights to women who wish to abort their babies by the millions. But in the household of faith, in the church, Paul steps into that culture and says, Enough! Not in the Lord's church, it's not going to work this way. You are Emmanuel's child. You are the children of God. And the children of God don't treat each other like that. Things are to be radically different in the Christian home. In the Christian home, the husband is not to lead like a Roman soldier. That ambition is too low. It's too low. Too unworthy for one who is adopted child of God. No, the Christian husband is to lead his wife and his family like Christ leads and loves and serves his church. And that means he discards the scepter of a king and he picks up the basin and the towel. He is to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
Now, we have already seen what the submission of a spirit-filled Christian life is to look like. But what is the love of a spirit-filled Christian husband to look like? Well, there are four kinds of love by which he is to rank himself under his wife. Four kinds of love, and we will only have time to squeak in two of them this morning. And here they are. His love for her is to be sacrificial, purifying, attentive, and unbreakable. A husband's love for his wife in the church is to be sacrificial, purifying, attentive, and unbreakable. Well, let's look at the first two. First of all, a Christian husband's love for his wife is to be sacrificial. Look at this in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. That is a radical statement in Ephesus from Rome. Calling Christian men to give up the standard. Just throw it out the back door. Forget about it. You have a new paradigm to work for, work from. You are not to lead like a god. You are not to sit with the remote in hand and order your wife and children about to meet your needs. You are to love her and serve her and rank yourself under her. You are not to be like a Roman soldier. But you are to be like the Lord Jesus. And you are to follow the model of his love for his bride. Far from being a family tyrant or deity, the Christian husband is to take his cues from the Son of God himself. And you remember what Jesus said in Mark ten forty five: He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Do you understand the implications there? This was God. I mean, we pretend that we're the God of our home when we act like a Roman soldier or fill in the blank. Jesus said, I didn't even act like that, and I am God. I did not come to, to be served. I came to serve. To lead, yes, but to serve in my leadership. The Christian husband's love for his wife is, first of all, to be sacrificial. In other words, he is to die to self. He is to put his wife's needs above his needs, her desires above her, his desires, her opinions Above his opinions, as she is ranking herself under him in submission, he should be ranking himself under her in sacrificial love, trying to outdo one another in getting under, not over, under, so that the leader is the one who serves the most. Now, let's make this real practical, men. What is denying Self or dying to self in marriage look like? Well, let me just give you some practical one, two, three, four things. What does it look like? Well, first it looks like giving up time at the office or the golf course or on the lake or whatever captures your interest simply to accompany your wife in doing something that she enjoys doing or needs to do. Now, that might mean taking her shopping without a murmuring spirit. It might mean taking time to fix a leaky faucet or a broken appliance. In my house, it means changing tens of thousands of dirty diapers. 
It may require any number of things. The point is, you're called to die to your own interest and pick up your wives. Die to your own interests and pick up your wives. You know, among the elders, uh, and you already know this, but when we make decisions, our policy is when we're making decisions for the church on anything that is an issue of principle, biblical principle, um, whether a person needs to be publicly disciplined or whether we, we need to, I don't know, uh, uh, expand our facilities or, or uh, take action in some way spiritually, um, start a new ministry. Whenever it's an issue of principle, our vote has to be unanimous. We have to be in perfect unanimous agreement before we move forward because we don't trust ourselves We believe that the Spirit is going to lead all of us or none of us. That is on issues of principle. But on issues of preference, we just say, hey, whatever you want. Who's the leader of this ministry? Is that what they want? This is a preference issue. I may not like the kind of light that they may choose. I may not like the color of the carpet or the paint on the wall. It doesn't matter. It's an issue of preference. Who cares? We're not going to make a big deal out of that. It's my preference against your preference. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to rank myself under because your preference is different than mine. Now, there are occasions when the elders have to say, no, 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 no. This is an issue of principle. And we're going to argue this thing to the ground. And we're going to work it out until it's done, until we all agree. And I thought, you know, that's the way it is a lot of times in the home. It should be. There are a few occasions where a husband may say, honey, this is an issue of principle. And we've got to do it this way. We've got to do it the way I say it needs to be done. Because I'm going to stand before God. And I can't go that way. It's an issue of principle. But on every issue of preference, are you kidding? I mean, we're not going to fight about that. What do you want to do? What do you want to do? And she says, no, 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 what do you want to do? And you say, oh, no, 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 after you. (laughs) It's pursuing your own joy through the joy of your wife. Secondly, it looks like prayer. Dying to self in marriage looks like prayer. Loving your wife like Christ loves the church means you will pray for her like Jesus prays for you. And I meant to say that in the present tense. He prays for you. Hebrews tells us that the Lord Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. Hebrews 7.25. He always lives to make intercession for us. Why? Because he loves us and he's praying for us. There's nothing in the Bible that says the saints pray for us. There's nowhere in the Bible that says Mary prays for us. There's nowhere in the Bible where we are commanded to pray to anyone except Jesus and the Father. But the Lord Jesus prays for us. Do you pray for your wife, husband? Do you pray for her? Do you seek the Lord about her spiritual needs, her need for wisdom and strength to manage the children at home? Are you praying about the pressures that she's under and her unique situation, her friendships, her love for Christ? Yes, it takes time. But this is what it means to give yourself up for her. It means you take the time to pray for her. 
And number three, third, denying self or dying to self means that you are attentive to her. You are attentive to her, to her subjective needs. Years ago in the Midwest, a story is told of a farmer and his wife who were lying in bed, not realizing that a tornado was coming, and the funnel cloud of the tornado came and hit their house and lifted the roof off of their house while they were laying in bed. And the bed got sucked out of the top of the house, and they were flying through the air, and the wife began to cry, and the farmer called to her that it was no time to cry, but she called back that she couldn't help it because she was so happy. This is the first time in 20 years they had been out together. Men, are you attentive to her needs? Do you know what she needs? Do you know when she needs a break or a word of encouragement, an affirmation of your love? Does she know that you treasure her above all else? Does she know that if it comes between you and your job, you'll choose her every time? Between her and ministry, you'll choose her every time? Do you know when she's down? Do you know when she's hurting? Are you attentive to her? Kent Hughes wrote, I've seen couch potatoes, speaking of husbands, who order their wives and children around like the Grand Sultan of Morocco, adulterous misogynists with the domestic ethic of Jabba the Hutt, who cow their wives around with Bible verses about submission. These are insecure men whose wives do not dare go to the grocery store without permission, men who tell their wives even how to dress. Men, don't treat your wife like that. Don't treat her like that. For the glory of God and for your own joy, be attentive to her. Treat her with the precious dignity she deserves as a fellow heir of the grace of life. And finally, dying to self means that you remain faithful to her. Men, let me make this perfectly clear. Any woman that you know who is not your wife is off-limits to you. Your flesh may tempt you in a variety of immoral ways, but you must master those desires and thoughts. And that applies not only to real women you know, but also to any you may find through some explicit media. You know what I'm talking about, men. Through the entertainment you choose. And by the way, let me make it very clear, pornography is way out of bounds for a Christian husband. It is way out of bounds for a Christian husband. And don't give me any lame excuse about your, hus- your wife agrees with it or participates in it. Guess what? That's nothing but a dressed up crock of lust. And God hates it. And I suspect... But if you were dabbling in that stuff, you need to question whether or not you have any grace at all. You need to seek the Lord as to whether you're even his child. Pornography is the dragon that's eating the church. And I know I come down hard on this often, but it needs to be brought up again and again. And by the way, we are so 
committed to helping men and women with this issue. We've put a place on our website where you can go and get more help. You need some help because you are violating your marriage with that if you are participating in that sinful activity. There is no excuse. The woman that God has given you is a precious gift. And you need to treat her that way. Not only in your outward expressions of sacrificial love, but also in the secret places of your heart. And make no excuses for it. Loving your wife like Christ loves the church means you die to self and live to bless the God who has given you a wife of your youth. Dying to self means you serve her even sacrificially, even to your own hurt for the glory of God and for her joy and your joy. So husbands, the husband's love is to be sacrificial. But one more thing, just briefly, notice it is not only to be a sacrificial love, it is to be a purifying love. It is to be a purifying love. Look at verses 26 and 27. We just read 25 again because we break a sentence here. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. The love of a Christian husband needs to be not only a sacrificial love, it needs to be a purifying love. You want to know a secret? The path to happiness and the path to holiness are the same path. The path to happiness, men, and the path to holiness are the same path. They're not going in different directions. And the sooner you realize that, the sooner your life is going to start coming together and making sense for you. And you're going to be experiencing the life God has planned for you. And will there be suffering? Yes. Will there be misunderstanding? Yes. Will there be death and loss and disease? Yes. Same as everybody else. But there will be joy. Because you will be pursuing holiness as a means to happiness. You want your marriage to be a picture of paradise regained? Then pursue holiness with her and for her. Be holy and pursue holiness. Why? Well, because that's what Christ did for his bride. Think about this in a prophetic sense. Why did Jesus come to die? Why did Jesus come to die? Well... He came out of love for his bride. He willingly set aside all of the privileges or most of the privileges that he had in heaven as the second person of the Trinity. He set them aside and humbled himself and became like a man and became obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, the only way that the Lord Jesus could know the joy of being eternally united, eternally bound. And we've looked at the term in Christ. How many times is that used in the book of Ephesians? In Christ, in Christ, we are inextricably bound to Christ. And the only way that could happen and the only way the Lord Jesus could experience the eternal joy of being eternally united with his bride 
was by making her holy. Even as he is holy. Otherwise, there would be a discrepancy. There would be disagreement. There would be no place in heaven for the church. And there would be no church. There would only be lost people on their way to eternal punishment, which they deserved. And so when he comes for his bride on the great wedding day of the Lamb, she will be brought forth in all of her glory, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, Paul says. She will radiate perfection, completely free from the power of sin, completely free from the presence of sin, having no moral or spiritual stain. She will be absolutely beautiful. She will be a gorgeous bride. And how will she, the church, be brought to this state of radiant holiness? I mean, think about the church. Think about what a mess the Western church is in because of tolerated sin in the house of God. How will she ever be brought to this point of absolute moral perfection and beauty? The answer, the Lord Jesus will have brought her to that point. He will have purchased it by his sacrifice and applied it to her by his grace. She will have it because he will have given it to her. And so a husband is to rank himself under his wife, to so rank himself under his wife that his sacrificial love results in her holiness. He is to be the foremost instrument of her sanctification. Listen, man, your pastor is not the one who's primarily responsible for making sure that your wife becomes holy. That's your responsibility. The husband in the Christian home is to be the foremost instrument of his wife's sanctification. If she grows to be a woman of great spiritual beauty... If she grows to be a regular P31, right? Proverbs 31, the virtuous woman. If she grows to be a virtuous woman, a woman loved and known for her beauty in holiness, it should be because her husband has been a humble partner in developing that beauty. And it will be because he let the word of Christ dwell in him richly. That's what Paul means by washing of water with the word. Verse 27, the word of God is the agent of cleansing and beautifying. Now, if you've been around here very long, you have heard me use expressions speaking of motive and goal. Pursuing holiness or pursuing worship or pursuing personal purity or pursuing living a life that is worthy of the Lord. For what purpose? For the glory of God and your own joy, right? We say that all the time around here. This is a perfect verse to illustrate this. This is perhaps one of the best texts in the Bible to illustrate this. It's an excellent text to support it. Verse 27. Look at verse 27 where it says, 
that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. This tells us why Christ washes and purifies his bride with the word. It gives us his motive. Why was he devoted to coming and making the sacrifice and using the word of God to make her holy? That he might present her to who? Himself. In all her glory. He wanted a beautiful bride. Every man does. And he could do it. He could bring it about. And he knew that the purifying agent, the beautifying agent, is not something you can pick up at the mall or the grocery store. You can't get it out of a tube. It comes from a book of all things. It comes from the word of God. And that's that's not only true for women, that's true for men. It's true for children. What makes men, women, and children beautiful in the eyes of God? Consistently, in the word of God, it is the same thing. It is the application of the purifying and beautifying cream, the beautifying and purifying water of this book. The Lord Jesus does it for his own joy. He did it for his own glory, yes, but he did it for his own joy. He does it for himself. Now, we're going to look at verse 28 next week, and we're going to see this again, but it's important to emphasize, men, that the ministry of ranking yourself under your wife and under your family, for that matter, by serving them and cleansing them and beautifying with the word of God is not just to be your duty. This is not law. Here's another law. Here's another law for you to live up to. No, that's not what the Lord is saying. That's not what Paul is saying. He's saying, this is for you. This is for you. It is for the glory of God, yes, but it's for your own joy. Wash your wife and your family with the word of God. Make them beautiful. Make yourself beautiful, for goodness sakes. Submit to the word of God. So don't think of yourself as much of a man unless you have a godly wife. And that her godliness is due in part to your ministry to her. Okay, are your toes sore yet? Mine are. And so let me close with a few questions, men. Are our wives more like Christ because they're married to us? Or are they more like Christ in spite of their marriage to us. Does the word of God hold a central place in your marriage and home? Do you talk about it? Do you memorize it? Do you read it for some other reason than to get your Awana thing done? Or so that you won't be embarrassed in men's ministry? Do you read it? Do you model how to apply it? That's the high calling of a Christian husband. And by the way, that just spills over when you have children. It's the high calling of a Christian dad. Men, if the goal of your marriage is to see paradise lost, become paradise regained, the responsibility for it is ours. It's ours. It's not your wife's. We've already talked about the wife's responsibility, and that's her responsibility before God. You can't change her heart. You can only submit yourself to the word of God. 
We must lead in the way that the Lord has dictated for us to lead. We must be men full of the Spirit, letting the Word of Christ dwell in us richly so that we can rank ourselves under our wives in a way that glorifies Christ and fills our homes with joy. That's the kind of leadership Jesus modeled in his ministry. And that's the kind of leadership that God has called us to. So what about it, men? I don't suspect there's a single man in here who's not thinking, well, I got some repenting to do. And if you're not thinking that, it's probably because you're not thinking about yourself. This is a time to think about yourself. To look into the mirror of the Word of God, as James says. To see yourself and don't walk away forgetting what you have seen. There are issues of repentance here, and I suspect there's issues of repentance for every man in this room. Because we're never going to reach perfection. And everyone in this room knows that we're far from it. And our wives know it better than anyone. And so what's it going to be, men? Is it going to be a continuation of the same old song? Or are you going to pursue the Lord? Say, Father, I want paradise lost to be paradise regained. If a man desires the kind of blessed marriage that God designed, he must learn to love his wife the way Christ loved the church. Lord Jesus, we know that we can only do that by the filling of your Spirit. We can only do that by the power of your Spirit.